Welcome to Flashback from Relay FM. This season, we are looking at some examples of failed tech products and companies. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined by my friend and your friend, Mr. Quinn Nelson. That was the best introduction I've ever received. I'm glad you're happy with it. You may not know this man is a seasoned professional. Stephen Hackett hosts Connected every week, and you know every time he introduces his co-host, it's a new adventure. I very often get it wrong for an episode for a show with like <laughs> I don't know 300 something episodes. It's it's tricky. The good thing is there's just two of us, so we don't have to argue about who needs to be introduced first. <laughs> that's that's true. So today we are talking about the Newton, a really interesting chapter in Apple's history. Yeah, the Newton is, oh man, it's it's crazy. I, I guess we should start talking about kind of the background and development of the product. So I have a question for you, Stephen. Have you ever heard of the term PDA? Like public display of affection? Like you give somebody a kiss in the office? No, not, not that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, hopefully hopefully not. Well, I mean, some, as we'll learn later down the road, did love their Newtons so much that there probably was some form of PDA. But no, <laughs> we're talking about a personal digital assistant. And just about everyone, I think, has heard about this term, new and old. I'm, I'm more of a young gun, and so I didn't grow up using one of these, sure. but I, I certainly had heard the term. And I think there's a company and, and product that most people associate with the term PDA, and that's Palm, right? Yeah, they kind of ran away with this term. And that's, I mean, I, I had a series of Palm devices. I was really cool in high school. We're going to talk a lot about this in the show, how cool I was when I was younger and how cool I continue to be. Right. I had a, you know, had a Palm, you know, some basic Palm pilot. And they really sort of just dominated this scene, but they didn't actually invent the term, right? No. I remember my dad had one as well. The term was coined by, believe it or not, everyone's favorite company, who no one in any way, shape, or form has any issue with, Apple. Yes, perfect relationship with all people on Earth. <laughs> Apple invented the PDA. Can you believe that? It's it's wild. You know, PDA is one of those terms, too, where it sounded so futuristic in the 90s, but today it sounds so old. Like this, yeah. the PDA is a thing I think about pre-iPhone. Way pre-iPhone. I mean, pre-Blackberry and, and Palm, kind of, to an extent. Well, I feel like in this series, I feel like we're going to return a lot to jobs leaving Apple because that's kind of a catalyst point for a lot of things that have shaped the Apple that we know today. And it's the place that we're going to return to to talk about the Newton. So the year is 1985. Jobs has left Apple. And, you know, John Scully, who was brought in by Jobs from PepsiCo to run things as CEO, has kind of taken over the, the field. And we now look back at the early 80s and 90s, at least until the point that Jobs returned as kind of the dark era for Apple, sure, <laughs> where the Apple seemed confused and its product lines were fragmented and a lot of crazy stuff was going on. But back at the time when Jobs had left, I mean, people were in relatively high spirits. Yeah, it, it's such an interesting time in the Macintosh's history. It, the company wasn't printing cash by any means. In fact, they were really struggling financially sort of in the mid-90s. But the Mac faithful, like that's where this term comes from. The people who were into the Mac, both at Apple and outside of Apple, were really, really into it. Yeah, I mean, you, you have this kind of young, unpredictable co-founder who's replaced by experienced leadership who might not be as passionate about the Mac as that young leadership was, but are, are experienced. And they're focused on Apple's mission and the Macintosh brand. And it was reported that by 1986, you know, Scully had already thought it was important to find a product to release as a successor to the Macintosh, even though the Macintosh has only been on the market for two years, you know. Um, and so they were already kind of forward facing and, and looking at things that might come around in the future. And I think the first T 
teaser towards what would become the Newton was revealed in a 1987 keynote. This thing, everyone, if, if you have not seen this video, you absolutely have to watch this. And we have links in the show notes. But it's a video about what Apple called the knowledge navigator. <laughs> this video is incredible like like seriously it's crazy go watch it so it's this concept video of this futuristic foldable tablet so i mean apple even i guess predicted foldables <laughs> actually they did take that samsung it's it's on this desk and this person comes in and they're talking to it i, I guess he's a professor of some sort it's you know seems very intellectual yeah and he's talking to a built-in assistant there's video chatting there's research there's 3D projection models, like it is wild. And can, can we just talk about that assistant? He's like in a tuxedo. He's like the most Ask Jeeves looking personal <laughs> assistant there ever was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm skipping it now. I, the bow tie is so good. I'm. So, I don't remember what his accent. Did he have a British accent? Oh yes, sir. I will find yeah. that. <laughs> oh yeah. So let me help you with your 3D modeling. It's yeah. just my accents are really bad. I apologize to the. <laughs> country of Great Britain. As are mine. As are mine. Yeah, this video is, is hilariously pipe dreamy. And look, you know, outrageous concept videos have been made by virtually every tech company that's been around long enough to kind of right. have been in that 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s era. But Scully is alleged to have been convinced by the idea of such a device, you know, a foldable tablet with which you could interface a uh, some sort of AI and then kind of more unique input uh, options than just a standard keyboard. And Apple wanted to build it. They were a talented company. They had a lot of individuals inside the company that weren't complacent with just sticking to the Mac, right? Yeah, I think it's important to remember the time frame we're in where now we know the Mac is a, is a whole line of computers, right? They offer, I don't know, sure. seven or eight different models and different you know form factors. But in the 80s, computer companies, Apple and otherwise, they would have a model and they may upgrade it a few times and they would replace it with something else. So in this time period, the Macintosh was only potentially going to be a couple of different computers and they'd move on to something else, you know, informed by the sure. Macintosh, but something different. You, know, you saw that with the Apple II and then the Lisa and then the Macintosh. So we view this through our eyes now of like, why would you want to replace the Mac after two years? But then in that culture, in that time, that's kind of how things worked. And you could see in that time, engineers who may have worked on the Macintosh saying, we built this computer, now let's build whatever's next. One individual at Apple, Steve Sackman, had worked previously at HP, and he was an engineer that believed handwriting recognition and touchscreens were the future, which for the mid-80s was probably pretty impressive, right? Yeah, he's a prophet, right? <laughs> yeah, the keyboards were kind of just a stopgap and that they would soon be abandoned by better input methods. But when he was at Hewlett-Packard, he just they weren't on board with this vision. And so he left to go to Apple in 1984 um, and was hired by Jobs directly to work for him on this Macintosh laptop that sadly never saw the light of day. It was scrapped after Jobs left. And Sackman was kind of then just assigned to lead general teams that were creating a few Mac models. But given the kind of I don't want to say visionary, but the, the engineer with a vision that he had quickly grew bored and wanted Apple to kind of work on a handheld computer. There's only so many beige boxes you can make before you get itchy, I guess. <laughs> Especially back then. This one's a little narrower, a little taller, but they all do the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, so he was, uh, he was reported to have begun poaching people inside of Apple to leave with him and start up in an entirely new company. But 
you know, as Apple has uh, become a little famous for, a bit litigious, although I'm sure any company in this situation would kind of get a little frustrated, Apple higher-ups kind of got word of what was happening, had implied legal action against Sackman for wanting to leave and poach a bunch of Apple's own engineers, and instead offered that he lead a small team inside of Apple to work on this handheld computer that he seemed to be so passionate about. Yeah, so Sackman wanted this new product, which he dubbed Newton, to be a tablet computer priced about the same as a desktop computer, so you know, hundreds of dollars, if not more, sure. uh, but that could be handheld. So the Knowledge Navigator idea, you know, it's it's not enormous, but it's, it's not yeah. handheld, I don't think. No. And, and so he wanted to come down to like the size of a folded sheet of paper, so like maybe like an iPad mini sort of in our modern time. Sure. Uh, he he saw it having cursive handwriting recognition, which like, by the way, can you write cursive? Like, did you learn cursive in school? Like, I, I was... I was required to learn it. If I was required to write it today, I would do a horrible job. They don't make kids learn that anymore. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, yeah. My elementary school kids haven't learned cursive. Like, yeah. well, <laughs> at some point, it's gone away. That's thank you. <laughs> and, and this was going to be a completely unique user interface. So Sackman didn't envision shrinking a Mac down into something the size of a VHS tape. He envisioned something all new. But as these things sometimes happen, you know, sometimes R and D projects. They get a little out of hand. The team went wild, and like at some point, they needed like three different uh, AT and T Hobbit processors, which were the CPUs that AT and T and some others had worked on. <laughs> they needed three of them to like run a prototype. Guys, like <laughs> you're out of control when you need three processors <laughs> to run a handheld device. Like, can you imagine the battery life they would have gotten with that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they're in this new category. There's no restrictions, and because of this, the the first Newton prototype, kind of codenamed Figaro, uh, which focused on engineering above all else, hold no bars, uh, was estimated to cost six to eight thousand dollars per unit. <laughs> oh, 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 that was the cost. Oh, no, that wasn't retail. That was what it cost them to build it. Yikes! And it was still more than three years away from release. So you're looking at a bad situation. Apple higher-ups are probably a little frustrated. Sackman himself decides to leave Apple in 1990, and he starts the B Computing Company, which is a fascinating story for a different time. Yeah. I, if not this season, at some point in the future, I want to cover B Computing and BOS because there's some really interesting stuff in there. Absolutely. And stuff that still is relevant today to an extent. Oh, yeah. So an engineer at Apple at the time, Michael Chow, who, interestingly enough, is still at Apple. Yeah, he's involved with the, with the iPad team. Okay. So Michael Chow talks to John Scully and and him, along with a couple of other people at Apple, decided that they'd pick this out-of-control research and development project and make it into a more responsible, more practical consumer electronics device that was smaller, more affordable, and more useful than the original design. And this product became known as Junior, internal to Apple. This Newton, or this version of the Newton, I guess, was to be easy to use, again, based on Sackman's idea of, of handwriting being the main input, so there's no keyboard to lug around no complicated menu system, just something a lot simpler. I think it's sort of Sackman's ideas, but sort of distilled down into a product that was, like you said, responsible and reasonable. So to power Junior, this the smaller Newton, Apple turned from the AT&T Hobbit processors that were being used in the prototypes to a British company that I've never heard of called Arm. Ooh. Interesting. <laughs> so Apple buys a 43% stake in this company, and the first Newton was powered by a 20 megahertz Arm chip. I said that uh, sarcastically because Arm is everywhere. Yeah. In fact, if you're playing this podcast through your iPhone, you owe a little something to the Newton. It's wild, right? Like time is a flat circle. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So th they get the hardware under control, mostly thanks to the, this new ARM processor, but software was a struggle. The handwriting recognition 
It's difficult to get right. Prototypes were rumored to have been extremely buggy and... Rather than develop a shorthand symbol language, so like I don't know if if anyone out there used a palm, yeah, they had their own sort of language you could learn. So you know, like an R would be just like two, you know, a line up and a line over, or you use like yeah, it was kind of simpler. It's called graffiti. They even had arrows that would direct kind of the motion that you were supposed to make the stroke in. My dad was really good at it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I could probably do it. Like if I if I if I had to, it's still in my brain somewhere. But they didn't want to do that, right? They, their vision is handwriting recognition, not learning some sort of weird spy code. Mm-hmm. So they they keep working on it. They wanted something to adapt to different writing styles, and uh, this is when things get get weird, right? Yeah. So there's a Gizmodo article which we've linked below that is oh, it almost sounds like a spy story. Uh, It claims that one night while uh, Al Einstadt, who was a VP at Apple at the time, uh, was in Moscow, someone knocked like fervently on his door. And upon opening it, he sees this allegedly nervous programmer checking the hallway, making sure that no one was following him. And that the programmer handed him a floppy that contained handwriting recognition software and just left. (laughs) What? (laughs) It doesn't sound real. And as if that wasn't weird enough, upon returning to the States and giving the Newton team the floppy, they discovered that the handwriting recognition was remarkably accurate, far better than what they had at the time, and actually learned to adapt to different letter shapes, uh, which in turn kind of learned how to read each user's handwriting. That's cool. Uh, It might seem pretty bog standard nowadays with OCR tech being as amazing as it was, but back then it was allegedly a huge breakthrough, although still not perfect, as we'll talk about in a minute. That, yeah, (laughs) this comes back to be a a real thing with the Newton. But yeah, this this story is fascinating and like, if you're in a hotel room in, in Moscow and someone knocks on the door and hands you a floppy disk, like, maybe don't take it. Yeah, maybe run. Maybe run. <laughs> maybe get on your first plane out of Russia. <laughs> that's that's the story here. And uh, and this group that this developer worked with that comes up again later. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends over at Smile. Save time typing and boost your productivity with Text Expander. Make snippets for things you or your team type repetitively and use them everywhere, like word processors, email, messaging apps, and online forms. You can customize your snippets with fill-in and pop-up fields. And if you want to learn the ins and outs of Text Expander, you can sign up for one of their free webinars. These include one on power user tips with David Sparks in February and a support team and productivity co-webinar with Help Scout coming in March. I've used Text Expander for a long time. I first came across it way back in my Mac Genius days. We used it at the Genius Bar to make sure that our notes followed a specific order of questions we had to ask the customer, and it made our data entry across the whole team much more uniform and much more useful. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And flashback listeners get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about TextExpander. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. If you've been meaning to try out TextExpander, now's the time. textexpander.com slash podcast. Our thanks to TextExpander for the support of this show and Relay FM. All of this time since the, the inception of this R&D project that came as almost a bribe so pe- or a legal threat so people didn't leave the company, it's now <laughs> six years later. Apple has spent a reported $100 million, again, in, in 1990s money. Yeah, and in Apple's 90s money. Uh, but John Scully was all in. Like He is excited about this, and he announces it at CES in May of 1992. Hmm. 
Remember when Apple used to go to CES? Yeah, now they just release uh, press releases to counter it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Uh, Scully calls uh, Apple's first new product since the Mac the birth of a $3.5 trillion mega industry that will combine computers and consumer electronics. It wasn't really a real product launch in classic CES fashion, but (laughs) in classic CES fashion, Apple had this uh, prototype, which no one had seen yet. It was a one-pound black device that had a 3.5-inch display hooked up to a large external monitor and was called iPad. No, no, wait. (laughs) You know, I thought about a one-pound device. That's pretty big. And then I realized that's like what the iPad Pro weighs, but, you know, with a much... A much larger display. (laughs) Yeah. True to Sackman's sort of original concept, this was not a shrunken down Mac. It's not running Mac OS, but the OS running on it was built with a technology called Dylan. By the time this was released, it was clear that Dylan wasn't going to be ready. So the OS was hastily rewritten using C++ and Dylan sort of lingered on as like a research project and then died. It was this whole like operating system and programming language kind of wrapped into one and it just it just never went anywhere. So a year later in 1993 at Macworld Boston, uh, just like we say, remember CES, remember Macworld? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they used to do them all over the world. There's Paris, New York. I mean, Tokyo, all over the place. Yeah, that's wild. So at Macworld Boston in 1993, Apple announces the first Newton product officially, uh, which is known as the Message Pad. It's a good name. I like Message Pad. Yeah. No, I st- still think it's a great name. It's better than some of the names that Apple uses today, iPhone 11 Pro Max. (laughs) And this message pad, the Newton, promised mobile productivity in a world dominated by desktop computers and payphones. Wow. This is a very retro episode. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, the, the PowerBook had only been sold for about two years, and they were fairly expensive, and they were very large. I have a PowerBook, one of the first ones from this era, and it's a, it's a, I mean, it was a small computer relative to portables at the time, but it, it's, it's, <laughs> it was no small and light device. No, it's, it's a thick boy. I mean, it, it's hard for me to consider this time frame. I mean, it was this 93. So, you know, I was, I guess, six years old or so, six or seven. And depending on the month, I may have been born. Oh boy. <laughs> but I mean, there's no, there's no like public Wi-Fi, right? Like if you're doing work, you are at your office you're using a modem at home. Those power books, yeah, you could work on the go, but you didn't have connectivity like we do today. And the Newton sort of solved the first half of that by being small and light. And, you know, I've got several of them and yeah, they're big by, you know, iPhone standards, but compared to that power book you have, like it is, it's remarkably small. And they're, they're pocketable. They, you know, a big pocket. Yeah. A cool vest pocket, maybe. Yeah. It's the nineties. Sure. Sure. (laughs) So, so all of a sudden users can take notes, review calendars. They can send faxes because you could use it with a modem because of course you can. It's dark green plastic body. So sometimes these are called the green machines because actually the plastic is not that different from like the midnight green iPhone 11 pro. It really isn't. Yeah. And the, the backlight is green. And it's just the green machine. A 336 by 240 display. So it ain't retina, but it's not bad. Yeah. A retractable stylus that was in the body. So like the, the the note line we have now. And again, this is the 90s. So you had a PCMCIA slot for expansion. You had infrared. So you could sync it to a, a bunch of Macs had infrared ports and some other PCs did as well. So you could communicate with not only computers, but you could also communicate uh, with other Newtons. So say that I had meeting notes and I wanted to beam them to your Newton, we could just put our Newtons down across from each other on the conference room table and I would I would beam you my meeting notes that I had taken. Pretty cool. 
this was wild for the time. And infrared didn't need networking, right? So it was sort of a offline, you know, point-to-point network, which is kind of cool. And it was all powered by four AA batteries. Later models, you could do rechargeable batteries, but four AA batteries, so you could just pop into the, into the Walgreens to get new batteries for your little pocketable computer. There you go. And all AirDrop added was the A. <laughs> that's, that's a bad joke. Sorry. IRDrop. Get it? <clears throat> oh, yeah. I'm here all week, folks. You're fired. We've done one episode. <laughs> this was a good idea, but we have to let you go. <laughs> so the message pad shipped in August 1993 to smashingly uh, mixed reception. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> it it had obvious potential, right? But the original Newton was criticized for its lackluster handwriting experience. It still just wasn't on point, uh, including in an article from the New York Times, uh, Peter Lewis writes, quote, the bottom line on the Newton message pad is that Apple promised too much and failed to deliver on a useful device for everyday executive chores. On the other hand, the message pad practically hums with untapped potential. And six months to a year from now, it's likely to be a popular executive tool, end quote. Kind of sounds eerily like the iPhone when it was first released, doesn't it? It does. Uh, I, I thought that too, or the iPad, right? Sometimes people, it's like, oh, it has potential, but it's not there yet. Mm -hmm. It graced the cover of Macworld magazine in 1993, where Carrie Liu advised readers that a fair bit of practice was required to learn the quirks and features of the handwriting system. Um, However, he did praise the Newton's intelligence writing, and I quote, if you write lunch on Friday with Joseph on the notepad and tap the assist icon, the noon automatically blocks out an hour at noon next Friday with Joseph. But in case of a conflict, the Newton will notify you. This is something that is like a feature in calendar apps today, right? Like Exchange is built on this idea and the Newton was doing it, yeah. you know, a uh, long, long time ago. It, it was as reliable as serious today. No, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> thought we already fired you. <laughs> this sort of intelligence was made possible due to the Newton's file system dubbed Soup. That sounds like a really reliable operating system, <laughs> a file system name. So Soup was comprised of a series of databases, and applications could search and use each other's data to create a web of information for aiding the user. It's definitely not the same in a far cry from the sandbox world of iOS, but what that permitted was it allowed the Newton to pull data from various sources, just like a human assistant would do, like the human assistant in in the uh, prototype that was featured uh, 10 years prior, the concept video. <laughs> Nas Navigator guy. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that guy ever got out of there. Is he still trapped in a prototype somewhere? Yeah, you know, he's an actor. I would love to find that guy and say, why? It's so different from what we have today. I mean, now we have applications, they live in their own silos and they communicate via APIs or, yeah. I mean, or services, right? So like the calendar, local calendars on your phone are a service to other apps. But this, basically apps could sort of play in each other's backyards and pull data and talk to each other. And the idea really was a human can make all these connections. Why shouldn't my device be able to do that too? It really is a good idea. It really is, and it showed a lot of promise, but despite this, the Newton just struggled to gain traction. Uh, like all technology, it had its fans, it had awesome things about it, but its handwriting recognition was a huge crutch. It was frustrating to use, and it was made infamous in a 1995 episode of The Simpsons when the school bully Dolph tries to write a memo to beat up Martin, but the Newton in its hand translates to eat up Martha, and then they, well, they chuck it at Martin's head. It's a great clip. Poor Martha. (laughs) Poor Newton. So Apple was not going to give up on this. 
it kept its head down and turned out several models in quick succession. So you had the original and then you had the message pad 100, the 110 and the 120. So these came with improved software, additional RAM, bigger ROMs, trying to make everything run more smoothly. Uh, in 96, the message pad 130 brought with it an optional backlit display, which meant you could use it at night or use it in, you know, dark rooms and uh, a really nice addition there. I've got a link in the show notes to a post on 512 that a friend of mine, Thomas Brand wrote. Thomas's blog is themed to look like a Newton. So he's the guy to read about this. And he wrote for me sort of the ultimate guide to the Apple Newton. So you can go read about the different models there. It's awesome. So shipping first on the message pad 130, Newton OS 2.0 brought with it an overhaul to handwriting engine, which was massively needed, and took the work of what originally came from that Russian company that had been in the original (laughs) and married it to a system built by Apple itself, and it was dubbed Rosetta. Uh, This new system was far faster, way more accurate, and could recognize hand-printed text, cursive, and basic shapes as well. And what's cool is that Apple realized that even this improved system wasn't going to be for everybody. And they ended up including an on-screen keyboard in Newton OS 2. So you could pull out the stylus and tap out words. If you had something that was, you know, the handwriting engine struggled with, you could fall back to a keyboard, which is a pretty big, I feel like that was a pretty big deal for Apple to do. I could imagine that there were arguments about that, but I think they've realized that, look, we need more options for more people. And I don't want to get off onto a too big of a tangent, but I have Newton device that runs Newton OS 2. And it's shocking, even to me today, how good the handwriting recognition is. It's far from perfect. I can definitely see instances in where it would be a frustration. But once you use it, I kind of was thinking to myself, I don't know an instance where I would choose the keyboard over the handwriting recognition. But for those that wanted the option, it was there. And I think it's good. Yeah, they definitely improved it. And and they continue to like make this product better and better. So 96 also brought the larger, more flexible message pad 2000. Late 90s, mm-hmm. having... Four years ahead of its time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having the name 2000 and a product name is very late 1990s. <laughs> it was much faster, had 162 megahertz ARM processor. Remember, the first one was 20 megahertz, so they've made... Yeah, it's a lot faster. They've made good improvements there. Uh, the speed let Newton OS 2 run way more smoothly and made the Newton a more attractive target for third-party developers who could write their own applications by this point. The other big deal was that the Newton 2000 or the MessagePad 2000 shipped with NewtonWorks, which provided basic word processing, a spreadsheet, drawing and graphing tools, and the system could also be extended to use by third-party applications. And the 2000 could be used with an external keyboard as well, but it retained its stylus and its resistive touchscreen. Uh, The screen was way improved from prior models, now supporting up to 16 shades of gray. Ooh. Yeah, they're 34 shades off, right? Did I do the math right? Killing me. (laughs) The larger device now had uh, two PC card slots for expansion, which meant that the Newton could more easily use a range of accessories, which included Ethernet cards, um, making built-in web browsering and uh, email clients more useful in a variety of situations. Yeah, having the second card slot's a big deal. There were some that added additional storage, and we'll we'll talk about in a minute, that opened up an avenue to a lot of stuff later on. Uh, In 97, the MessagePad 2100 was released, which 
It was basically the 2000, but with an increase in memory. And there was even a program where you could have your 2000 upgraded to a 2100. My 2000 that I had in college, uh, I used a Newton for a long time in college and I sold it to pay off my wife's engagement ring. Uh, I had actually, I sent it off to a company in the Midwest somewhere. They're long out of business now, but they were doing this upgrade still. And so I sent mine off. Cool. The 2100 is like a very responsive device. It really was faster, and that reminds me of the final piece of hardware that shipped running Newton OS, which is the Emate 300, and that's actually the Newton device that I own. It was clad in this semi-translucent green plastic, which is very 90s, but looked... It actually... You've seen one of these, right? Oh, yeah. I've got one. The, it's a really, really nice device. No, they look beautiful. Uh, it's it's kind of translucent enough that you can see the components, but dark enough that it still looks premium and high quality. And it came in this clamshell form factor. It, it looks like a laptop with a handle. Actually, it looks like what became the iBook G3. It does. Um, They're very similar. Yeah, it was it was designed primarily for use in education. So it had this rugged body. It had a built-in keyboard, which was a terrible, awful keyboard. I mean, you think your butterfly keyboard bad is keyboard is bad. This 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 thing was terrible. These tiny little keys, they were very mushy. They didn't register half the key presses. It's for kids, you yeah, know. Just shrink your hands down. You know, it's, it's fine. For kids, it had this long battery life, and and all of these were selling points for schools looking for a mobile solution for students. I mean, now we talk about Chromebooks and iPads and one-to-one programs, and like the eMate is sort of there early on. It is, and it even had one feature that was only recently added to the iPad a couple of years ago. Uh, it had this quote-unquote simple mode, which limited access to only teacher-approved applications. And in functionality, it, it supported actually multiple users. So a single unit could, share, uh, could be shared between several different students, which is an awesome feature. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Hello. Hello make insanely comfortable buckwheat pillows. I don't know if you've ever tried a buckwheat pillow, but it's pretty different from your regular fluffy pillows. It supports your head and neck and doesn't collapse under the weight of your head like traditional pillows. Hello stays cool and dry compared to pillows made of feather and foam. Because buckwheat tends to breathe better, meaning it doesn't get all warm and humid. So there's no more flipping to the cool side of the pillow. It's always cool. And you can add and remove filling to suit your needs, so the pillow can be just the way you like it. People have been using buckwheat pillows to sleep on for years. They're very popular in countries like Japan, and they appear on fancy hotels' pillow menus. I don't know what that is, but my guess is that Quinn probably does. I've had a a Hello pillow for quite a while now, and it really does change the game, especially if you tend to get hot at night. It being cool all the time really is refreshing. Hello is made in the U.S. of A. with quality construction and materials. Their certified organic cotton case is cut and sewn for durability, and the buckwheat is grown and milled here in the United States. So here's the deal. If you're curious to try one of these, you can. Sleep on it for 60 nights, and then if Hello isn't for you, just send it back for a refund. Head over to hellopillow.com flashback right now. Get your own buckwheat pillow. That's H-U-L-L-O pillow.com slash flashback. If you buy more than one, they have a special discount of $20 off depending on the size you're looking at. They have fast free shipping with every order and 1% of their profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Give it a try. If you love it, you keep it. And if you don't, send it back. Head to hellopillow.com slash flashback now. Our thanks to Hello for the support of this show and Relay FM. The, the email is, is really cool. But it wasn't enough. So 
In 97, the Newton uh, organization was being spun out into its own company. It was going to be wholly owned by Apple, something like FileMaker. But uh, that was sort of the plan. This was going on after Apple purchased Next. But it's it's really kind of heartbreaking. So there's this Newton tech journal that, that Apple sent out to Newton developers. And just two months uh, before this change, Apple reassured Newton users that the future <laughs> of the device was safe. But, uh, of course, we know... We know what happens in early 1998. This Jobs fellow comes comes back to Apple, and on February 27th, 1998, Apple announces that it will be ending the development of the Newton. Oh, oh just no. a couple months after. So sad. It spent four and a half years on the market, the Newton line, and it's believed that fewer than 300,000 devices had been sold. But many believe that it was actually John Scully's championing of the product that did it in. After Steve Jobs came back to power, <laughs> Jobs didn't make comments to that effect. Of course, he, he stated the following, quote, this decision is consistent with our strategy to focus all of our software development resources on extending the Macintosh operating system. Hmm. To realize our ambitious plans, we must focus all of our efforts in one direction. And I think he's right. Yeah, it's, it's I could see the idea that it was personal and maybe there was a little bit of that mixed into it. But if you look at what else Jobs did which uh, we will talk about, it, this is consistent with the rest of those things. Um, so in the the time after that, a couple of engineers at Apple actually tried like buying the technology from Apple. They were unsuccessful in that. But there's this neat uh, oral history of the Infinite Loop campus. And Phil Schiller and Tim Cook both actually speak about the Newtons canceling. And so this is a bit from Tim Cook. Uh, my first day at work, so he had come from Compaq. My first day at work, I had to cross a picket line to get into the building. They're out there with signs and they're yelling and I'm asking myself, what have I done? I learned that it was because Steve decided to kill the Newton. When I told him that there were protesters outside, he said, oh yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> I love I love that so much. That is simultaneously so Tim and so Steve. Phil Schiller then goes on, quote, Steve, Newton customers are picketing. What do you want to do? They're angry. And Steve says, they have every right to be angry. They love Newton. It's a great product and we have to kill it. And that's not fun. So we have to get them some coffee and donuts and send it down to them and tell them we love them and we're sorry and we support them. Aww. <laughs> Isn't that nice? That's nice. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Donuts. Uh, Steve sent you some donuts. Sorry about your little pocket computer. <laughs> like we alluded to, the Newton was far from the only product killed by Steve Jobs. He also canceled Apple's line of printers, a line of scanners, digital cameras, and like whole lines of Macintosh computers. I mean, it was pretty ruthless there for a little while. Cleaned house. Mm-hmm. Jobs believed that in order for Apple to survive, they had to focus on the Macintosh and would go on to introduce the grid of four. Uh, there was a desktop and a notebook model for both consumers and another for professional users. And, and that was it. There just in Jobs's model wasn't room for something like a PDA, especially one with bad reputations in this <laughs> new world view. Yeah, I mean, they had to focus, right? A lot of people believe, I think, including Jobs, that one reason Apple was in the tank when they bought Next was that they, they were just focusing on too many things. And so he really yeah. pared down. Actually, for a long time, you mentioned the iBook a second ago. For a long time, there wasn't even a consumer notebook. It was just right. the PowerBook and then the iMac and PowerMac. And they eventually kind of filled that out. Unlike almost anything else we're going to talk about in this series, the Noon has such a dedicated fan base to this day. You know, I don't think anyone knows the exact number of currently active Newton users out there, <laughs> but they are definitely 
still out there. There's way more than you think. Someone you may you may know and love is a secret Newton user. <laughs> Ten years ago, though, there was almost a big problem. So, you know, everyone remembers Y2K, and that sort of sorted itself out after a lot of work. Well, the Newton OS 2.0, that platform, had date handling issues past January 5th, 2010. And Newton community members realized this, and they worked to patch the issue, and they did so successfully. And so you could run this patch, and your Newton wouldn't freak out on January 6th, 2010. But that's far from the only software that has been written for the Newton in the two decades since its demise. Countless apps and utilities are out there, including web browsers, RSS readers, calendar and contact card importers. Someone wrote an MP3 decoder. (laughs) For later models, <laughs> there are even some who have built like whole GTD systems around the device. That's so crazy. It's really impressive. Yeah, one of the biggest hurdles I'd imagine was networking. And so there were actually a number of Wi-Fi cards that could be used with later models of uh, the Newton. And these older cards don't support WPA2 encryption and they can't deal with HTTPS, which is obviously kind of a problem in modern day. But really, that's beside the point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it works. And it, it's it's really cool. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, Grant Hutchinson, uses a Newton as a web server to this day. Like you can go look at it. It's this, this website he built that's running on a Newton in his basement. It's It's incredible. I love it. That is so cool. Uh, there have been several meetings of the Worldwide Newton Conference, uh, but it's faded over the years, as you can imagine. Uh, that said, interest in the platform has been sparked again thanks to a documentary about Newton platform named Love Notes to Newton by Noah Leon. Yeah, I interviewed him, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Really fascinating documentary. If you want to learn a lot more about the Newton, I, I highly recommend it. I haven't seen it. It's on my list now, for sure. It's it's really, really good. So so that's that's the Newton, you know, it, it lived and then it died. But what's cool is that that handwriting software, which was really its downfall, that was actually the part of this that lived on. It lived on in Mac OS X in the form of Inkwell all the way up to Mac OS Catalina in the fall of 2019. When it was enabled, users could write on a graphics tablet and have text entered in the active text field. It was even updated to allow users to write command key shortcuts to open and close windows and fire menu items. Yeah. Uh, really cool. And it, there's some really deep irony that that's the part of this that survived for so long. <laughs> it really is. And there's also irony in the fact that Catalina brought it to its grave. Yeah, the 64-bit uh, world is here and didn't make it. Goodbye, dearest friends. Well, look, <laughs> that doesn't mean that everything is done for and over. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from Newton. I do too. So there's the phrase, a product before its time. And anytime I hear that, yeah. I think about the Newton. I mean, if, if you think about the the vision of it, of having all of your personal information with you all the time, like that, we live in that world. And that was not the world the Newton was born into. But we owe a lot to that vision. I think we really do. I mean, if you look at kind of the feature set of the Newton, not every single thing that it offered is present today in modern devices. Handwriting recognition obviously was kind of the the landmark surprising feature. But as we talked about earlier, these earlier kind of digital assistants that would schedule stuff in, uh, it's just evolved over time. And and I think the Newton is (laughs) kind of a product that we look back on and go, man, that thing was cool. Uh, It's obviously something that sadly was 
canceled because Steve Jobs was just cleaning house and didn't see value in the PDA. But my question for you is, do you think that the Newton deserved to keep living? Or is it good that Apple killed it off? You know, in one sense, that's hard to answer because the Grid of Four was so successful. Yeah. And, and those computers they were able to build and turn turn over quickly, that, that's what brought Apple out of the ditch, right? The iMac in particular sold well enough that Apple could fund the transition to OS X. Would the Newton have been a huge distraction from that? Probably not. But at the same time, it's hard to argue with a strategy that really, really worked. I wish that it had survived because I think the smartphone era may have gotten here a little sooner had the Newton carried on and Apple could have kept pushing that because we talked about Palm. It basically took this over and the old Palm OS, you know, before WebOS, the old Palm OS was really stagnant for a long time. And maybe they would have continued pushing if they had had Apple, you know, sort of nipping at their heels. I'm a big believer in that every once in a while, there's a product that comes around that changes the world. And and you can know that it will do it before it actually does it. I think a good example of this was the iPhone. I, I had the first iPhone, got it very early on. And despite its limited functionality, and, and there was really limited functionality in certain areas. I mean, people forget there was no MMS, no media, multimedia messaging on the first iPhone. Yeah, There's no copy and paste. There's no app store. It was a very bare bones experience. But even then, I could tell you know, this is different from everything else around it. This is going to be the future. It's going to change the world. And there are only a handful of experiences that I've had that have spoken to me that deeply that kind of opened my eyes or my vision to how it could change everything. And even though I wasn't young enough to use a Newton when it was new, when I purchased one and and used it, this was probably around, uh, I don't know, 2009, 2010, my Emate 300. There were instances where I would use that. And even then, as a, you know, however old I was back then, 15-year-old kid, uh, kind of blown away by some of its functionality and some of the things that I thought at the time it still did better than the iPad back in the day, which for a device that had even at that point in time been over, you know, 10 years old was was unbelievable. And I think it's a, it's a shame that it died, but it still very much lives on today. And a lot of what Apple is today and a lot of what we do on our iPhone and our iPad and our Mac can kind of trace its roots back to uh, back to the Newton and give it a, a, a bit of a hat tip in the sense. Yeah, I think so. If you want to, uh, to learn more about the Newton, we have a bunch of links over in the show notes at relay.fm slash flashback slash one. Uh, there is a link there at the at the bottom of the list to a GitHub project where you can emulate Newton OS on your own computer. So if you want to check out this operating system and see how it works, you can run it, spin it up on your MacBook Air and, and take it for a spin, which is uh, which is pretty cool. So it's good fun. Thank you for joining us for episode one. Quinn, thank you for uh, joining me on this adventure into the past. Where can people find you online? They can find me at youtube.com slash snazzy and on all the socials at snazzyq. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH and you can find my work at 512 Pixels. And until our next episode, Quinn, say goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Adios.